Welcome to the Unwritten Playbook, where we talk to interesting people who are rejecting a status quo and paving a new way. This is your host, Megan Bowen. On today's episode, I'm speaking with MJ Peters, VP of Growth at Refine Labs and former VP of Marketing at Firetrace. MJ rejects the status quo that industry experience should be a requirement for candidates, and I completely agree. We discussed how hiring managers should be thinking about evaluating talent differently, and also about how candidates can position their experience in a way for a variety of roles. MJ and I shared some personal stories from our experience, um, in addition to a ton of actionable tactics for both the hiring manager and the candidate. I hope you enjoy this episode as much as I enjoyed recording it. Really excited to chat with you today, MJ, and I love the topic that we're going to get into. Um, I think we both have some great stories that we can not only share from our personal experience, but hopefully also give the listeners some things to, to think about this topic differently. So set the table for our discussion today, and I will ask you my favorite question. What is the status quo that you reject and why do you reject it? Uh, so the status quo that I reject is that you need industry experience to succeed in a particular role. And in my background, which is uh, a lot of experience in industrial and manufacturing, B2B, uh, I saw this a lot. And I worked in different industrial industries, so like the water industry, water and wastewater treatment, the fire industry, fire protection, and And so many job descriptions require industry experience. So many hiring managers do not consider people without industry experience. Um, And you just see people go through their whole careers and there's nothing wrong with this per se, but they go through their whole careers going from one competitor to the next. Um, And it's nothing nothing wrong with going from one competitor to the next in your career, but um, I think what is wrong with it is that it prevents people without that industry experience from getting in. And I think a lot of those people have a lot to bring to the table um, and, and we're cutting ourselves off in these in these siloed industries from a, a huge pool of talent. Yeah, I completely agree. And I think this is a great topic to tackle both from the, you know, the hiring manager perspective in a particular industry, also from, you know, any particular candidate or individual that may want to actually break into an industry that they had no experience in before. Um, so we, as we go through, we can kind of uh, talk through both of those perspectives, because I think there are some interesting and different takeaways depending upon, you know, where you are in this equation. What I always like to start with is digging into a little bit more about why this is a status quo, like how this came to be. What do you, what comes to mind when you think about just like the series of events that that created this reality that you know I agree is 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 socially accepted and very true today in many scenarios. Yeah, so I think fundamentally the world has changed and shifted, and industries and businesses haven't necessarily caught up, which is what is causing this. So I can totally understand why in the past industry experience was a huge advantage and uh, something that you wouldn't be able to succeed without. Um, What's changed between now and then is we now have uh, the internet. We've got got Google, we've got content marketing, we've got networking on LinkedIn. So before where you would have to spend 
five, 10, 20 years to truly understand the landscape and the technical reality inside of your customer and your competitor and your customer's customer and how the product work and also spend all that time building relationships with people um, across the whole interconnected industry. Now you can you can learn things by just typing the question into Google and getting your answer in seconds because some content marketer at some other company wrote down the answer to this in an, in an easy, easily digestible format. And I've had this exact experience in my own career where uh, I started a new job at this company that made water quality sensors, and I knew nothing about the product, which before would have been a big problem. Um, but over the course of 12 months producing content for the company, I would discover a question that I knew people were asking in Google because of Google AdWords data. And then I would go know that I should ask that question to the sales engineer, and then he would explain it to me, and then I would go and ask the electrochemist for like some follow-up information, and then I would Google five things and read some other websites that either our customers made or our competitors, and then I would produce the piece of content, and after 12 months of doing that, I was one of the top five most knowledgeable people in the whole company, and that whole process would have taken probably a decade before, but because of the internet, it took me 12 months. I love that example. Um, and I think it also it, it also speaks to uh, even beyond a lot of companies requiring industry experience, a lot of them will require, you know, X number of years in a having a particular function or in a particular skill set. And I think the other, I think, uh, point that your story just illustrated for me was around how there are these skills like resourcefulness, like curiosity, like willing to figure things out on your own um, that can actually overcome any gaps either in industry experience or any like functional or, or skill set too. So even like younger people right out of school that are looking and they see jobs, you know, you need five years of experience, this 10 years of experience doing that. I think a lot of the things that we're going to talk about this episode, I think would apply to potentially those people too. So whether it's like industry or functional experience, I think a lot of people undervalue those, whether you want to call them soft skills or not, but like the ability to uh, figure something out and make something happen. I feel like you can't really teach those things, but you can teach people about fire systems and you can teach people about, you know, how to make cold calls or like whatever the other skill set is. And so little slightly off topic, but I think that was another like secondary point that I, that your story like popped it made, made pop into my head. <laughs> Absolutely. And the same thing, by the way, goes for having a college degree, having a college degree, having a number of years of experience and having industry experience are all proxies that people use in hiring for other things. And I think that hiring managers should think more deeply about what is it that you're using this as a proxy for, because it's a proxy for some capability to execute or to think about something some way or to work with people in some way. And the real requirement of the job is that core capability not the X number of years of experience or a four-year college degree or whatever it may be. 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I know that we were we were talking a little bit in in preparation for this call around some of the like negative consequences that essentially result from hiring managers having these types of of requirements. The impact on uh, diversity um, and and other things like that. I'd love for you to. I think you had a lot of really great points and thoughts on this. So I'd love for you to expand on that. Yeah, I've thought about this a lot. I, I think the biggest reason that people should care about hiring for capability and should spend time working on that problem is because if you require industry experience, then it negatively impacts your ability to get diverse people into your company and into your industry. Because if your industry today has an overwhelming number of people who are a certain gender, a certain race, or a certain socioeconomic status, then requiring years of industry experience is a great way to make sure that that never changes. Yeah, and I think um, to play devil's advocate on this point, if I put myself in like the hiring manager's shoes, you know, they're looking to find people that they can bring in that can do the job, right? And there are some, like, there there are there is some validity that, sure, industry experience will, maybe you have more relationships, you have, you know, you'll ramp up faster, et cetera, et cetera. And so when you think about some of the challenges that hiring managers have to face and maybe why they go this, this route, because maybe it's just a little bit um, more straightforward, maybe it's a little easier, maybe it, like, de-risks the type of candidate they're going to be bringing in. Um, how do you think that, that that hiring manager should be like shifting their perspective um, while acknowledging that there are some trade-offs by starting to, to open it up and consider other candidates that not, might not have those things that they traditionally required? Okay, so I totally agree that hiring managers face a ton of challenges, especially if you are trying to hire a hard to find skill set and you're trying to hire or scale your company very fast. And earlier I talked about how years of experience or a college degree or industry experience are all proxies for other things. And the proxy is helpful because it, it helps you go faster, right? But the challenge with a proxy is that you can get false positives and you can get false negatives. And what I mean by a false positive is you can get somebody who has the experience that you're using as a proxy for some capability, but they don't actually have the capability. And you can also get a false negative, which is someone who has the capability, but not the experience. And you, will, you want to avoid both things, but what I think we're focused on here is avoiding the false negatives. So how can you prevent missing out on those great candidates that don't have industry experience? And you're right that it, it definitely takes time to put, potentially seek out those diamonds in the rough. Um, but what I would challenge hiring managers to think about is most people that lead teams will tell you that hiring is the most important thing that they do. And so I would challenge hiring managers to think about if you really feel like you don't have time to think about this, then are you treating hiring as the most important thing that you are doing right now? And the reason I say that is because I literally have done that myself as a hiring manager. I would have told you three years ago that hiring is the most important thing I'm doing right now, but I was rushing through it and I wasn't thinking about it the way I would stop and think about it now. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, one of the things that I would, you know, encourage people to consider is actually taking a moment um, to really almost like rewrite 
your job description or, or create some type of scorecard that really is more aligned on like, what are these things proxies for, right? Like what are the real core competencies of the position that are required for them to be successful in that and separate it out from function and industry. It's more about, you know, communication skills, problem solving, resourcefulness, like, you know, writing. Uh, it's really actually just thinking through what is this person going to be doing in their day to day and how are we pulling out what the most important skill sets are regardless of the type of position, the type of industry that they might have been in previously um, or even college degree, right? It's like we we think if someone goes to college, they have like critical thinking skills, time management skills, problem solving, like comprehension, whatever it is. But to your point, like a lot of those skills can be cultivated and developed without ever going to a college with, you know, university or anything like that. And so I think the development of some type of uh, scorecard or framework where you're really outlining the, the core competencies, I think is a really good place to start. And I think it also forces you to clarify, like, what are the sets of skills that are needed for this particular role and, and position? Um, so I think that's one like tactical thing that, that people can, can take away from this. Um, I think the other like tangent I want to go down on this, because I was also thinking about this as you were making your last point is I think it's really important to recognize, um, like the stage of your company, because I think where I've seen this go wrong is sometimes you'll have someone industry experience, you know, maybe they're like a CRO, like, wow, they've been a head of sales, a CRO at these five companies. Um, and they've had two exits and they've had all of this success. Um, so I'm going to bring them into, you know, my company so they can do the same thing, but you neglect to understand that maybe the stage that those previous companies were at were, much more mature, much more early than your stage. And I think that's another really important component of this because someone with a track record of success, it doesn't guarantee that you can just plug and play those people into a new environment, right? And so curious if you've seen that or what you think about that point as well, because I think it's kind of interconnected to this whole topic. Yeah, when I worked at Halma, Halma is a $10 billion conglomerate that is made up of mid-sized manufacturing companies. So 50 to 100 employees, 10 million to 100 million in revenue. And many of these companies were built off of the success of a single product that found excellent product market fit. And in manufacturing, the product life cycles are really long. So some of these companies were 20 years old and they had never made another product since their first one. And that was fine because the product life cycle was still going. <laughs> However, it was coming to the end of the product life cycle and they needed to find their next breakthrough product or their next market they could expand into. And the companies hadn't built marketing teams. They didn't have strategic marketing. They didn't have product marketing. They didn't have product management because this had never been a problem for them before. And so a lot of Halma companies were at the same stage where they were building marketing for the first time and they needed someone to come in. And it was almost like that series A startup situation, like the same kind of core skill sets applied. And my first role leading a marketing team in Halma, this is what I was asked to do. And I looked terrible on paper. You know, my experience was like I was in a rotation rotational leadership program, and then I was a product manager at a company, but the president of Firetrace hired me for 
capability. And he hired me because he saw me win this pitch competition where we had to do uh, like a 12 week accelerator where you had to combine the technical or market knowledge from one company with the technical or market knowledge from another company and open a new segment that neither company was in. And my team won this competition because we designed a product and got a customer to commit to a $70,000 purchase order before the, the final pitch. And I walked off the stage and I got two job offers. Um, <laughs> Now, now let me compare that to the alternative scenario, which is several other companies hired someone who looked awesome on paper, who had been a VP at several like large manufacturing companies that had great new product development processes, et cetera, et cetera. And not all of those people, but some of those people failed when asked to do the same thing as I did. And I looked terrible on paper because they came in and they looked around the company and they were like, there are no processes here. There are no people on the team. There is no market data or insights that I can work from. And the job was to create all those things. So being paralyzed by the fact that they're not already there was a big problem in that role. And years after I succeeded and, and built this at Firetrace, the recruiters at Central Helma were like, how should we build the job profile for a new marketing leader in these companies. Like, what should it look like? Because you did it well. Why did you do it well? And um, I'm very grateful for that president at Firetrace for overlooking the fact that I looked bad on paper because um, it let me build some really cool experience. That is an amazing story. I didn't know that either. And I, I love that. And I actually think that kind of um, is a really nice segue into something that I wanted to hit is we can kind of start to shift into um, talking through some more tactical things that both candidates and hiring managers can do. And I think your story of uh, preparing and, and winning this competition is a great example of how, as a candidate, you actually have a lot of power in how you tell your story and how you demonstrate what your strengths are, regardless of what may be like on a particular job description. And so when you think about um, from a candidate perspective, whether maybe I'm you know just out of school or maybe I've been in a particular role or industry and I'm really looking to maybe try something new, um, how can people think about positioning their experience, whatever it may be, their skill set, whatever it may be, um, their potential. Like, I think a lot of what your story speaks to is the potential that he saw in you to go further than what you, you know, had done at, you know, up to that point in your career. And so what are some things that come to mind that um, would be helpful for candidates to, to consider and to think through in order to potentially make, make, a, make a change uh, by industry, by function, whatever it may be for them? Yeah, I would love to hear your thoughts on this too, by the way. Um, and then let's come back to the hiring manager side of it. But in terms of uh, when you are a candidate, I think back to when I was in university trying to apply to my first roles. And in university, I had, I had actually never worked in a business before when I was graduating. I had jobs each summer, but they were all nonprofit and research jobs uh, in, in scientific um, industries. And I was trying to work for a business straight out of college. And I went to the Career Center. And everybody always says that the Career Center is completely useless. The Career Center changed my life. So if you're in university, go to the Career 
career center. Um, and they counseled me. They were like, think about what transferable skills that you have and how you can position those against what the company needs. So we've already kind of talked through one. I think a very transferable skill that people might have is like resourcefulness and um, not being paralyzed by ambiguity, you know, like being a self-starter. All of these things um, would make you a great candidate for an early stage company. And if you can think of specific examples from your personal life, even, or from volunteering experience, or from a side hustle, or from your core job where you've demonstrated those particular competencies in abundance, then that helps you position yourself for the job in a Series A startup, for example, um, in a way that shows your capability as opposed to just having your you know, resume on paper be the only thing that demonstrates what you're capable of. Yeah, I completely agree with that. And I think um, I a few things that um, I've learned over the course of my career um, as it relates to this, and um, people will, will actually ask me this a lot. And the, the first step that I recommend is whatever, you're just about to get a new job, you want to make an industry or, or role change, um, or maybe maybe you want to look for something actually that's not too dissimilar than what, what you have experience in. But um, what I find is there's a step of uh, self-reflection that's really required to really force yourself to really clearly identify and state what is it that you want? Like, what do you want to do? So separate from maybe exactly what your experience is, we all have desires and ambitions to do different things. And this is a step that seems obvious, but a lot of people will skip over it. Um, and sometimes it can take a lot of journaling, talking with a trusted friend, reflection, self-awareness, maybe even assessments like StrengthsFinder or other things to help give you inputs into what are the things that I like to do um, and what are the things that I'm good at. Hopefully there's a decent amount of overlap with kind of what you want and what, you, what you're good at, but getting really clear on that is important because this is essentially your your, your brand or your value of what you're bringing to the table. And so step one for me is like clarify what you want. Um, step two, which is very tied into that is what are you good at? What are, what are your strengths? It's really important to know what your strengths are and what your weaknesses are. We all have them. Like nobody can do everything and that is totally fine. Um, and I think I think that speaks to the point that you are making, right? Try to describe those things uh, not connected to a particular industry or function, but more broadly as just a, a core competency, resourcefulness, you know, strong communicator, whatever it might be. Then once you have a really strong sense of clarity on like what you want and what you're good at, um, I actually had a, uh, my executive coach ha had me go through this exercise um, and it was so valuable. Actually write out your career narrative, like write down your story. And so start from the beginning. Like you, like you said, you have it, you can have examples from your personal life, from junior high, from high school, from being in the speech and debate club, from college, from jobs, whatever it is, right? You need to actually tell a compelling story. Humans love stories. And so whenever uh, at, at this particular juncture in my life, I had left an executive position, I was looking for my next one. Um, and I actually just wrote out this like three page narrative of 
you know, my experience in school, my experience in the different positions that I've had. Um, and I, and she had me practice it with her as I was telling my story. Um, and when I went on a job search, you know, I had about 10 meetings with different founders and CEOs and I never gave anybody a resume. And I just told this story at, at every conversation. And it was what it was essentially highlighting was what I want to do, what I'm really good at, and all of these uh, anecdotal examples of how I actually demonstrated those things. And it was funny for me because I had several of those conversations where the CEO, the founder, whomever I was talking to would make some type of comment like, wow, you got your story down. And like, that sounds great. <laughs> like, I, I have a clear picture of who you are and what you want and what you're good at. And you know, data or examples to kind of back up these claims that you're making. And so I would, I would kind of distill it into that three-step framework. Um, and I was surprised how well it worked. I was even a little resistant with my coach because I was like, this seems like kind of a superfluous exercise. Like, is this really going to matter? Um, and I'm so glad she made me do it because that ultimately that's how I got several offers, got a job. Um, and it's, it's something that has like still serves me well, um, in different, in different scenarios. So I think that's a good, good way to think about it. If you're a, if you're a candidate. I think that was super well articulated. And I actually, I think it's a good segue into the hiring manager side of it because I think actually as a hiring manager, it's your job to put the people you are interviewing in positions to tell those stories so that you can really get a feel for who they are. And so I think the, the tactical advice I'd give to a hiring manager is do exactly what you said earlier in this interview, right? What are the actual competencies? And if you're using a proxy, think about one level deeper, right? When you say you need B2B SaaS experience, what do you mean by that? Do you mean you need the ability to market a complex technical product? Do you mean that you need the ability to build a compelling value proposition because we're trying to sell on value and not sell on price? Okay, then say that, right? Build your rubric. And then from your rubric, you should build both the questions that you're going to ask in the interview. I love behavioral questions. I know that they've been around forever, but they're awesome. You should build behavioral questions that actually test for the six competencies or whatever. And then you should build the job description from that same rubric. And this is a challenge that I uh, put, put, through my, put myself through when I'm uh, hiring for a new candidate. And I think that hiring managers should think about. When you write your job description, I believe that a candidate should be able to read the job description and reverse engineer the job description and be able to predict exactly which questions you're gonna ask in the interview. I love that. <laughs> so your rubric, your job description, and the questions you ask in the interview should all be so connected that, that they can stand up to that standard. I, I love that. And I think it also speaks to having a little bit more structure when you're involving many people in the interview process, right? Um, typically, there's, you know, multiple phases or stages of an interview where you're going to talk to several different people, potentially, there's some type of practical assignment or something like that, that you might be asked to go through to demonstrate things. And so in addition to that, 
like rubric or scorecard where you're really breaking down those competencies. I think as a hiring manager, you do have to influence and somewhat control how the other people are participating, right? And so to your point of like writing out the questions, like providing those and making sure that each phase of the interview, it's really clear what are we trying to assess in this phase and who is the best person to assess that, right? And how can we have some consistency in our assessment of candidates from candidate to candidate? So whether it's using the same questions, I think being explicit about what we're actually trying to learn in each of the phases of the process um, and some type of rating of the rubric or the scorecard by the interviewers themselves, um, hopefully to, to also eliminate some bias or other things that can inherently come up. Um, even unconsciously, a lot of people don't even mean to do it, but it happens because um, we're human. And so I think thinking through like that whole process and, and providing a lot more like structure, guidance, um, and explicit like recommendation to everyone that's involved in the process. Because I think that's where I also see things can kind of get a little bit um, muddled is if, you, if you're not as prescriptive as you could be um, when so many different people are, are typically involved in interviewing candidates. Yeah, and it's in your best interest as a hiring manager to do that too, because at the end of the day, you, you know, maybe you're not super altruistic and you don't want to support this diversity and inclusion objective, even though you should. Um, <laughs> however, it will, it will get you better candidates. And in my experience, I have, I am personally an over-optimistic interviewer, and I have also worked with people on interview committees that are overly pessimistic interviewers. And I think there's a whole spectrum of that. And using a process like this controls for the overly optimistic and the overly pessimistic interviewers so that you really do hire the best candidate. So if hiring is your top priority and you want the best talent on your team, which is something that everyone says they want, then it's so worth investing in a process like this. Yeah, and I'm, I'm curious, um, maybe a final point before we get to our fun to end questions. Um, what are your thoughts on really hiring for um, potential and capability versus track record. I think there's clear, you know, objective benefits for hiring someone with a track record of success. You know, sure, there's a higher likelihood that they might, uh, you know, perform better. Um, but I, I think that there's a lot of value in, you know, placing bets on people. I think that um, like even in my own career, um, when I got my first promotion to a COO, my the bulk of my background had been running customer success and account management teams. Um, but I think the CEO at the time saw some potential in me that I would be able to rise to the occasion. And had I not had that opportunity, um, you know, I, I wouldn't have made that, that jump in my career. And, and it sounds like you had a similar um, experience at HOMA with them seeing your potential and then like it clearly paid off. And so um, would love to know your thoughts on like the benefits and risks of, of placing bets on people and maybe some of the indicators that, that if you see it, it's a, it's a, it's a worthy bet to place. Yeah. I, it's interesting because you've had that experience. I've had that experience as a candidate, but then I think the flip side of it is I think a lot of first time hiring managers have had the opposite of experience where 
they come in and they're like, I had success in my career. I got to this point fast and people took bets on me. I'm going to take a bet on someone. And then you take a bet on someone and it doesn't pay off. (laughs) And then you're like, okay, I'm just going to hire the person who already knows how to do this. Right. And I've actually seen, I've had that experience myself and I've seen Dave Gerhardt post on LinkedIn about it. So I think that's a common thing that happens. So it's like, how do you find the right balance? Yeah. And I think how I would think about it is what are the skills and capabilities you need in this role? And are they particularly rare? So I think if you need a lot of rare skill sets and capabilities for a role, I just think it's more likely that you're going to have to take a bet on someone. And especially, I think this is, this happens with leadership positions, like both of the positions that you and I got promoted into. Maybe you need the combination of like the ability to motivate and inspire a team, as well as the ability to cope with a ton of ambiguity. I think there's, those are both rare skill sets and to find them in the same person is ultra rare. So if you find them in someone who does not have a proven track record, it's probably a good indicator that you should take a bet on that person. Yeah, I I would agree with that. And I think for me, a couple of the um, sort of competencies or skills that I look for that I feel are um, are skills that set someone up to succeed no matter what um, are things like adaptability, resourcefulness, um, and and honestly, like optimism, enthusiasm, positivity, like. Um, I find that if, if you can glean from conversation or, or whatever, um, that they have that resourcefulness and that adaptability, and they have this infectious positivity or enthusiasm, I found that that combination, um, it, it just, I think it represents resilience and grit, um, and sort of like the never give up attitude or, um, like I will find a way, like, you know, if someone tells me no, like, cool, you're not going to help me, but someone else will, <laughs> like, I'll figure it out some other way. I found that those particular things, um, if someone, if someone checks those boxes for me and then are maybe missing some other pieces here and there, I'm definitely more likely to, to place a bet. Cause my, my conclusion is, well, I can probably teach them some of these other things. And, and I think it's very difficult to teach resourcefulness, adaptability, and and optimism or positivity in many ways. Sure, you can. I think you can teach anybody anything, but I think those are those are harder. And I think more people are more uh, inclined to possess those skills than others. <laughs> I've seen people also speculate on the role of like hunger or like a chip on your shoulder, right? And I don't I I don't think I'm willing to say one way or the other that like hunger or a chip on your shoulder is a predictor of success, but people who keep getting passed up because they don't check certain boxes, but they have all the intangibles do have hunger and do have a chip on their shoulder. And (laughs) I've seen that drive people to produce some pretty incredible results. Yeah. I think that that's a, a good call out as well. Um, this has been awesome. I've loved this conversation. We we've, we've tackled a bunch of stuff and gone on a few interesting tangents here. Um, so I want to ask you a, a couple questions as we wrap things up. And so, um, based on everything that we're talking about today, I like to do a future cast. So 10 years from now, what do you hope has changed? How do you hope 
you know, hiring has evolved. Um, I would really be curious to know like what that utopia 10 years from now would look like, look like for you. Yeah. I actually want to bring it back to a problem that I saw in my career in industrial and manufacturing, which is a lot of these industries and I'm going to call out the water industry in particular, right? Literally everybody everywhere needs water. And a lot of these industries have this problem where the people with all of the knowledge and the experience are retiring and leaving the workforce and there's not a pipeline of talent to pick up the mantle. And it's because I think we've constructed artificial barriers to talent getting in at the ground floor and building that experience over time. And when you think about an industry as important as water, that's such a huge problem. So I feel like if people start being proactive about hiring for capability and, and removing these barriers to get more talented people into these really important industries today, then 10 years from now, we'll see that problem start to go away and probably see a lot of cool innovation happening if we build the talent pipelines to keep those industries going strong into the future. Yeah, I love that. And it's, you know, we've even bringing up industrial industry or, you know, in the industrial sector throughout this conversation, but it's, it's interesting when you just also break it down and it's like, we need these businesses and these people to like keep our water supply <laughs> in check and like, we need that to survive. So why we should all care about these things <laughs> yeah i saw i saw a tweet the other day actually the, the tweet was from a while ago and i can't even remember who tweeted it but it was somebody who like has a strong entrepreneurial track record it might have been someone like peter Thiel, um and he tweeted something like there are two places that you can find awesome new business ideas one is places that people have never looked before and one is places where people have looked before and they just didn't look hard enough. And he was like, there's probably more opportunity in the second place. And I think about that all the time. I think the industrial sector is a place where people don't look hard enough. And if we got more people into that industry in the first place and built a talent pipeline, you would create people that are looking harder at those problems and spur the kind of innovation that I think we need to solve tough problems. Yeah, well said. I totally agree. Um, so the last thing we've we've covered a lot, and we actually covered a lot both from a hiring manager's perspective, from an individual candidate perspective. Um, but after everything that we've touched on today, if there was sort of one main takeaway that uh, everybody left this conversation with, what what do you hope that it is? I think the main takeaway that I would leave people with is specifically that one for hiring managers, which is uh, filter things through the lens of based on my action, is it clear that hiring is my number one priority? Because if if it's not, and, and again, like I said, I filtered my own hiring process through this question and realized that there was things that I could change. And there's all, like there's things I could still change, right? But if you think about that and you come back to that question and continuously adapt your hiring process, you're going to get better and better and you're going to get better talent and your company is going to benefit for it. And, and we're going to have better diversity and have more people with the right capabilities in our businesses. So I think that's a really important question for hiring managers to ask themselves. Yeah, I think that's fantastic. Um, 
And the only other thing that I would add is, um, you know, even, even though I had some initial skepticism to this exercise, I think actually going through and um, getting clear on what you want, what you're great at and writing out your career narrative can serve you in so many ways. And it's an exercise I recommend to anyone that's looking for a job or anyone that's looking to make a change. Um, and so I just reinforce that point. It's a good tactical takeaway for people to think about whether that's something they wanna, wanna get started on. Um, before we wrap up, MJ, where can people find out more about you? I know you're on another podcast. I think you can share any of your details for the listeners. Yeah, so uh, I am on LinkedIn, MJ Peters, or at slash MJ Peters one on LinkedIn. So I post pretty often and would love to connect with anyone. I also host a podcast, which um, no surprise from some of the topics I have talked about in this episode is the Industrial Marketing Show, where we talk about um, how you can apply new marketing tactics in the industrial sector. So if you happen to be in industrial, uh, maybe you can check us out on my podcast there. Awesome. Well, it was great to have you, MJ, and I'm lucky enough to uh, call you a colleague and work with you every day. Really appreciate you coming on the show and um, love this conversation. I thought we tackled some great, great topics and, uh, and also uh, gave the listeners some actionable uh, tips and takeaways that they can decide if uh, it makes sense for them to, to think about adopting. With that, though, thanks again. And, uh, you know, I'll see you on Tuesday at the office. <laughs> Thank you very much for having me. It was an honor to be invited on the show.